Hello, this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore upcoming Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that new passages of God's grace will be revealed to us together. If you're a preacher or a person preparing to hear a preached sermon, Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. The passage I'd like to share with you today is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. It's the lectionary reading for the fifth Sunday after Easter, cycle B of the lectionary, which happens to be May the 2nd, 2021. There are three characters in this story, and I want to explore each character one at a time and talk about the, the dimensions of God's grace at work within each one of them. Obviously, we can start this section and talk about these three individuals by discussing Philip, who is apparently one of the primary characters in the story. Philip is one of the deacons that was elected to that office earlier in the book of Acts. You might remember there were 12 apostles at the beginning of the book of Acts, and they eventually found the workload too difficult, and so they uh, elected seven others to join them who were called deacons. And one of those deacons was a man named Philip. Philip is his Greek name, or his Hellenistic name. Uh, we don't know his background. We don't know a lot about his history. We do know that later on he goes on and he has four daughters who are prophetesses that the Apostle Paul later meets. But one of Philip's most important acts we read about in this particular book is that he is the evangelist to the Samaritans. Uh, the Samaritans were a, a group of individuals who lived north of the city of Jerusalem and really were held in ill regard by most of the Jewish community during uh, these times. And there's lots of reasons for this, but the Samaritans were really regarded as the, kind of the equivalent of sellouts. Um, they were people who remained in the land of uh, Judah after it was conquered by the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. And uh, they didn't hold to some of the same traditions that the Jewish community held on to. And so because of this difference in traditions, they were, they were held in contempt by the Jewish community. Philip goes to the Samaritans and he proclaims the gospel to them and they receive baptism, both by water and the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of where our story opens is at the end of that Samaritan story with Philip. It says that all of a sudden the Spirit spoke to him and told them to take the road down to Gaza, which is an interesting request at that particular time because the city of Gaza no longer existed. To be honest, to be called to go to Gaza would be like being called to take a road to nowhere. It's in this setting, this road that goes from Gaza eventually down to Egypt where all sorts of rich stories in the Bible happen, stories that uh, occurred around uh, Elijah and Elisha we can read about in First and Second Kings. And in many ways, this particular story of Philip meeting the Ethiopian eunuch is a story patterned after those rich stories of Elijah and Elisha. For Philip and the ministry he was doing, this is the wrong way. So if he's in Jerusalem, to go to Samaria is to go north, and to take the road to Gaza is to go south. It's the opposite direction that Philip had already been going in. And by the time this story ends in verse 40 of Acts chapter 8, uh, Philip finds himself uh, transported, if you will, miles and miles away on the coast near Joppa, and then he has to go north along the Mediterranean Sea and eventually arrives in Caesarea. Now, 
What's interesting about this story is that it's there in Caesarea that Philip meets the Apostle Paul much later on in Acts in chapter 21. You know, Philip in this story, he's like a forerunner of Peter. He goes to the Samaritans first before Peter, the apostle, has any notion of going to the Samaritans. And so Philip goes, Peter comes after him. In this story too, Philip goes to Joppa, then he eventually finds his way to Caesarea. Both of those are destinations that Peter will find himself in in Acts chapter 10, especially in Acts 10 when we read the story about Cornelius, the centurion, who is the first true Gentile convert to Christianity. The idea here with Philip is simply this, that God uses affinity to connect diversity. Remember, Philip is his Greek name. We don't know what his Hebrew name is. It's quite likely Philip was a a, a Jewish person who had lived abroad in the Greek-speaking world. But nonetheless, God uses Philip to reach this Ethiopian in a powerful way. God uses affinity to connect diversity. And which takes us really to the second character in the story, and that's the Ethiopian himself. Now, this is a really bizarre story this, about this Ethiopian visiting Jerusalem. It says in the story that he's a eunuch. And some people would say, some scholars would say, that doesn't necessarily mean he's literally, physically a eunuch, that he's been castrated. But in this particular context, it probably is accurate. And it has to do with what his position happens to be. He's uh, basically the minister of finance or the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. And in the story, uh, that particular queen is called Candace. And that's probably not the best way to render that. Instead of uh, Candace being a proper name of a person, Candace is actually the title. So you would more it would be more appropriate for you to say the Candace. And so oftentimes those who had close contact with the queen, regardless of whether there was a king or not, in Ethiopia, the, the, the queen was the ruling individual over the nation state, not a man, a woman was. And the Candace um, had to be protected. And she was protected by the fact that she had surrounding her eunuchs. In other words, no one who would be in any kind of sexual relationship with her. And so to be a, a eunuch meant that you were probably castrated and that you carried out various duties with regarding money or finance, anything that brought you in close contact with the queen. What's inter- interesting about the story is that it says that the, the eunuch had gone to Jerusalem And as a eunuch, he would not be allowed anywhere near the Jewish temple, no matter what, because of his castration. He he would have been able to maybe go into the court of the Gentiles in Jerusalem, but certainly not into the temple compound proper. Now, it needs to be said here that race in the ancient world is very, very different than it is today. In no way would this Ethiopian who was black from Africa, would he have been regarded in as any lesser class of individual? No, he actually would have been regarded as somewhat exotic, a person of authority and stature. The place he's from is not the Ethiopia of the 21st century. Rather, he's from a location that's much closer to the um, area of the Sudan. In the Bible, this area, before it was called Ethiopia, was called the Kingdom of Cush, C-U-S-H. 
And what's interesting about this particular place is that in Greek and Roman maps of the day, this location is described as the ends of the earth. This is as far away as you could possibly be in the Roman Empire, and it was for that reason it was regarded as being somewhat exotic. What makes the story fascinating is if we connect this back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is this. Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room before his ascension, or on the Mount of Ascension, he tells them that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. The Ethiopian literally represents those at the ends of the earth. Greek and Roman maps considered that part of the world the end of the earth. It was the end of the world as they knew it during their time. And so really what's happening here is a rich story that's not just about the individual, the Ethiopian. It's about Ethiopians, and it's about the ends of the earth, and it's about the, the way in which the gospel finds its way to the ends of the earth. It says that the Ethiopian is in a chariot, so immediately what comes to mind is some kind of a vision of a Roman chariots rushing down roads at a high rate of speed. So it's always been joked that Philip must have been really fast at running in order to catch the chariot. Uh, the actual Greek word here really connotates more of a carriage being pulled not by a horse, but probably by an ox. It's moving quite slowly because the Ethiopian is reading a scroll from the book of Isaiah. Now, in the ancient world, one would not read to themselves. Reading always occurred out loud. And so Philip, if you know this story bears witness historically, would have no trouble catching up to a carriage being pulled by an ox. What's rich about this story with the Ethiopian is that it's patterned after Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus story which is a story that Luke also told in that gospel. Remember, Luke is the writer of Luke and Acts. And so these two stories are almost parallel with each other in terms of their structure, how they work, the rhetorical nature. There's like questions being asked in the story back and forth. And then, of course, at the end of the story, when Jesus vanishes in the breaking of the bread in Luke 24, very similar that Stephen, after, I mean, Philip, after he baptizes the Ethiopian, he just vanishes at the end of the story. There are so many similarities to the Emmaus story. I'd encourage you to read it to, to get a sense of the kind of storytelling Luke is employing here. The Ethiopian is reading Isaiah, and he's reading the suffering servant story. And the suffering servant story is a rich story in Isaiah, two different passages of scripture, this one in Isaiah 53, and it has to do with the nature of Jerusalem as a suffering entity. And so it was a great debate early in the first century about whether or not the suffering servant was the nation state of Judah, Israel, Jerusalem, or whether it was an individual, a messianic figure like Jesus. And so Philip illumines this text for the Ethiopian from a kind of a Christocentric reading, a quintessentially New Testament way of reading this text, and that the suffering servant is none other than Jesus himself, who would suffer and bear these wounds for the healing of God's people. And what's represented here is important. This is like a reform movement in Judaism. Christianity is not a separate religion, the way Acts tells it. It's actually um, an expression of Judaism that Luke tries to paint as an evolving form of Judaism. It's a, another form of Jewish expression in the ancient world. And so Philip's explanation is designed to be 
evolutionary rather than simply revolutionary. The eunuch gets to the end of Philip's dialogue and he asks him, what keeps me from being baptized? And, and that question is significant because it might allude to some early Christian liturgy around baptism. So when a candidate was brought from baptism, somebody might say, what keeps them from being baptized? What's great about this story is that the eunuch is baptized in it. He's included in this expression of Judaism called Christianity. And this is the idea with the Ethiopian, is, you know, diversity counts the people. So when we talk about diversity, we, we count all the different types of people that are there. But inclusivity is where people count. And for the first time, the Ethiopian is counted. He matters. He's included. He belongs. It's a rich part of the story with the Ethiopian, but... Even between Philip and in the Ethiopian, they're not the central characters in the story. The Spirit of God is the central character in the story. And that's the third character I want to talk about. You see, it's the Spirit that calls Philip to completely change direction from moving north towards Samaria and farther to go the exact opposite direction and go south. The Spirit moves within the heart of the Ethiopian to seek guidance and leadership as he's trying to read Isaiah. The Spirit tells Philip to address the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian is led to faith in his conversion and water baptism. Water in the middle of the desert, ironically. And then at the end of the story, Philip is transported. He's just raptured to a new location. Actually, that Greek word for transported in verse 40 is the same word for rapture. He literally vanishes and pops into a new location along the Mediterranean coast. You see, in Acts, the spirit is the main character that drives the gospel outward. And that spirit shatters barriers, claims lives, transforms the world. It happens with Philip. It happens with the Ethiopian. This, this story is grounded deeply in the narratives of the mysticism of the spirit moving and leading and guiding. And, and it's one of the reasons why this story is so grounded in some of the great stories of Elijah and Elisha. This crazy story means something because it really is in some ways out of place at this part in the book of Acts. But what the story is trying to set up for us is something wonderful. Code Law, text, are not the governing features of Acts. The Spirit is. Uh, ben Witherington writes this. He says, For Luke's purposes, however, at least part of the point of the story is to show that with or without the apostles, God was going to fulfill the plan to spread the good news to all flesh, even to the ends of the earth, even if it required using an evangelist rather than an apostle even if it required direct divine intervention in various forms. And Witherington goes on. He says, the human leaders of Christianity in Jerusalem could only try to catch up with the plan of God, which was operating often apart from and beyond their control. Witherington, I think, hits it right on the head. Humans in the book of Acts are always playing catch up. And we might consider that same thing today. You know, the idea here about the spirits moving is this, is uh, it's that the universal gospel becomes universal in application in this story. 
That was a quote talked to me by Dr. Harold Dollar, one of my professors in college. The universal gospel becomes universal in application, and the Ethiopian eunuch shatters so many barriers. Diversity and inclusion are ancient Christian practices led by the Spirit. And this gospel, this gospel of Jesus, breaks about every rule there is to attain that goal. Because this story is the first in setting the scene for the admission to the Gentiles. Luke breaks this reality wide open in Acts chapters 8 through 10. So stay tuned and see what happens. See how God opens up these doors when Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 10 when Peter takes the gospel to Cornelius in Caesarea. See how God breaks this open and how this universal gospel becomes universal in application. There's some great truths here for us to hear. Some great sermons sitting here to be preached. I hope you're going to hear them, and I hope you'll be able to see them take on new life in your own context. Let's give thanks to God for this great and rich story that teaches us that the universal gospel can become universal in its application and its inclusion. Thanks be to God. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.